0: It's such an honor, Danny, um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here, and it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work, and you've given it a lot of thought, and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. (laughs) Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the book she's asking questions about, (laughs) and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it, and I think that's really special.
1: Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat, great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast.
0: That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe, and we need more word nerds like yourself people that are passionate about books.
1: Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. Today I chat to Michael Muhammad Ahmed. We spoke earlier in episode 29 about the Lebs. Today we talk about the beautiful collection of stories after Australia. Michael Muhammad Ahmed is the founding director of Sweatshop Literacy Movement, Inc. His debut novel, The Tribe, received the 2015 Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Australian Novelist Award. His follow-up novel, The Lebs, won the 2019 Multicultural New South Wales Award at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and was a finalist for the 2019 Miles Franklin Literary Award. He received his doctorate of creative arts from Western Sydney University in 2017. Welcome back to the Words and Nerds podcast, Michael. It's such a pleasure to have you back. And I remember we spoke last time on episode 29 about the Lebs, and it's a book that stayed with me still, and our conversation stayed with me even more. So, welcome back.
0: Thank you for having me. And also, Salam Alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors.
1: Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. And I remember last time we just had such a wonderful conversation about all things. So I know that we'll repeat that today because I know when we get going, you are just such a passionate human. And that's what I love speaking to you.
0: I appreciate you observing that I'm passionate. Some people interpret my passion as aggressive and hostile. (laughs)
1: I did not get that from you at all in our last conversation. Uh, Today we're going to talk about many things, but one of them is After Australia, a collection, an anthology of short stories which is edited by you, and it's just a a wonderful collection of stories. But can you give us a little bit of an elevator pitch about this anthology?
0: Um, Yes, 18 months um, ago, uh, Diversity Arts Australia Um, under the leadership of Lida Nahlus, uh, asked me to edit an anthology, to bring together writers from every state in Australia to compile and edit an anthology with them, uh, which imagines the future of Australia by the year 2050. And um, in order to deliver this project, I... uh, uh, brought in our close collaborators and partners at a firm press because I felt that the scope of this could have a national impact if we were partnered up with a um, an award winning uh, 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 and respected publisher. So what happened though during the process of the collaboration between me and the writers is I discovered that most of them did not really want to write literally about the year 2050. Some of them wrote about the past, some of them wrote about the present, some of them wrote about what you might argue to be an alternative present or a not too distant future, um, or an alternative history that you know transforms what the present would be. And I realized in creating the work that the entire anthology was a road to 2050. It wasn't each individual story, but the the entire work was an analysis of who we were, who we are, and who we might become by the year 2050.
1: That's a great description, and I was going to ask you because the collection includes such a diverse uh, sort of type of story spanning across so many issues. I mean, Michelle Law captures the harsh living conditions caused by global warming, and then we have another story about uh, painful immigration experiences and the realities of alienation. So I wanted to ask how much, of the, how much of the stories were directed by you or directed by the authors? Did they just get free range to write whatever resonated with them?
0: they received more free range than i think i would have liked at the beginning so the fantasy of being an editor when you start off you know your dream is that writers just do what they're told (laughs) but i don't think that's what makes a great writer so there's a conscious contradiction i think for editors in the way we approach our editing we want our writers to listen to us but we also know Simultaneously, that if they listen to us too much, it will undermine what makes them great. And so at the beginning, I have a very clear vision and I execute that vision and I try to implement and instill that vision in all the writers. And then I kind of hope that they allow their creative talents and their creative genius to undermine and overrule any instinct that I have and any kind of agenda or desire that I have. And ultimately, we do this dance back and forth through this kind of active resistance to each other that gradually creates what I would like to think is an incredibly groundbreaking, unique uh, and original contribution to knowledge, um, contribution to Australian literature as a form of knowledge. The other thing I would like to point out, and I presume you might get to this soon, but I'll just quickly establish this for the record, that this particular book was incredibly self-determined in that the editor, all the supporting team around me, and all the contributors are indigenous and or people of color. And so you add that kind of, dimension to the, uh, to uh, uh, what is already a controversial or confronting concept. And then what you realize is that you're going to have a lot of diverse opinions and you're going to have a lot of back and forths. So you're going to have a lot of debate. And because a lot of these writers, actually all these writers are dealing with genuine structural and systemic issues like racism, they, they bring to the work a particular kind of pain that requires a particular kind of sensitivity and respect from the editor.
1: True, and as a reader coming into it, you absolutely see the truth and you absolutely see the pain. And I wanted to know as an editor, what was that like reading this? Because as you said, there is so much truth and pain in the stories and I felt it and you must have too.
0: Um, It's a different experience for me as an editor. I think people outside of the the, not the business of writing, but outside the business of editing, don't necessarily understand just how hands-on good editing is. So this isn't all editors. This is, for what I would say, are good editors, is that our work as editors is as creative and is as intensive as the work of the writer. And so for me, the drafts that I receive in their very raw forms uh, in 90% of the cases, there are exceptions, and I don't want to single out anyone, but, but in 90% of the cases, in a good anthology, so like, you know, like, a, like an, in an anthology with, with, with great writers, because you, you would know through my work at Sweatshop that I work with young, emerging writers who are just starting off, mm-hmm. but even in an anthology where there are great writers, 90% of the material you get is. Incredibly raw in its early form and it requires a lot of work and the amount of um, Editing that is involved and when I say editing I don't mean fixing or rewriting someone's work, but the amount of dialogue and discussion and markups and pushback and the amount of uh, pain and actual like hurt feelings from both ends You know me being insulted and the writer being insulted as we try to get to that finishing line um, is very Uh, difficult and it means that the work for you is uninspiring at the time you know now i read the work and i and i feel like we as a collective of self-determined indigenous people and people of color have created a masterpiece but in that moment I, i me and the writers are just going through the awkward painful dance of creating the work and you can't really see the um the forest uh, for the trees, as they say, in that moment, all you can see is how bad everything is. And so I I approach it in a very negative and cynical way. And I can honestly say, if you talk to the people closest to me, uh, you know, through my work at Sweatshop, for example, like Winnie Dunn, um, who's the general manager of Sweatshop, uh, you know, if you talk to her, she'd say, oh, yeah, like Muhammad was having so much anxiety and despair and, um, and a sense of humiliation and failure and a sense of like, I didn't, create a great book and, and we didn't create a great book and we didn't meet our full potential right up until the end. It's only now that I look back with great pride on what we created.
1: Mm, that's amazing. And I think that must be part of it. And correct me if I'm wrong, is it because you do care so much about the stories and you do want them to resonate with people who read them and you do want to get those
0: really important diverse voices out into the world? Yeah, I, I'm not saying this rhetorically and I'm not saying this cynically like i'm not i'm not being a smartass i really mean this i think it's a really really bad sign when a writer and an editor are feeling good about what they've created (laughs) um i i think that you know i i speak very pragmatically about writing i have a reputation if you look at uh, an essay i wrote in the sydney review of books in 2016 for example called bad writer you know that i have a quite a, a a harsh a reputation for being quite harsh and pragmatic about what's good writing and what's bad writing and I'm really harsh on people who I think have very bad attitudes to, towards creative writing. And one of the attitudes that I think is bad um, is thinking that what you wrote is God's gift to literature or that what you edited is a masterpiece. I think writing something and having a, quite a lot of doubt and, and uh, using that doubt and that anxiety to push yourself uh, as an editor or as a writer to keep coming back to the work and trying to, to make it the greatest it can be is really the only way you can um, create great art. And it's only when you finish that, when, you, when you've gone through that process of self-doubt and um, a- anxiety and, uh, and like letting go of your arrogance and your ego, you know, telling yourself you're, you're, you're uh, some kind of uh, genius. Uh, only when you get through that process can you look back and, and, and really be proud of what you created.
1: I couldn't agree with you more and I think it extends beyond literature and art. I think it extends through life. Now I want to ask you is this something that has always been with you because this is only something I've discovered as I've become older that the self-doubt and the anxiety actually makes you better in your work and better as a person because it's that overconfidence that undoes you every time. So is this something that you've always known or has come to you with age?
0: Um, that's a fantastic question I because I can't really pinpoint the moment where I realized I suck you know <laughs> but what I'll tell you is uh, a couple of months ago maybe a year ago now I was rummaging through my old files in my in my bedroom and I found this you know this like rubber box and I pulled it down um, off the shelf and I kind of went through it because I wasn't too sure what was in there and i realized that all of my short stories from when I was a teenager were in there you know And I read them and realized that they all had a very similar theme. They were all about this really beautiful, handsome, intelligent, charismatic, incredible boy that all these girls were obsessed with. (laughs) And I quickly realized that the reason that I was writing as a teenager is because I couldn't get a girlfriend. And that (laughs) I was just a lonely kid who, who kind of had to play out my fantasies of what I wanted to be, the kind of person I wanted to be. And the kind of way I wanted to be seen by girls, because I couldn't have that in reality. And the the at the time, if somebody came along and told me this is all rubbish, this work, this is embarrassing, cringeworthy, shameless, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, and it's the it's the work of a real loser, both in somebody that's living his life and somebody who's trying to be a writer, like romanticising the idea of a writer, the gen, like the literal definition of being a loser. I, um, I think the kid that I was would have imploded. I don't think he could have taken that. And it was a very long and painful and difficult process to actually come to terms with the fact that creative writing is a skill and an art that you can learn. And that through learning the form plus whatever unique um, uh, experiences you have to bring to it, that combination of understanding the craft and your unique perspective on the world it firstly, it's a very long and painful process to get there, to get to that realization and then to go through that labor. And um, once you get there, you, you start to really be able to identify what, what, what good writing is and what it takes to be a good writer. So I just thought it was a
1: very interesting question because it took me a lot of a lot of years to figure that out. Whereas it seems mm-hmm. like it might have been something that you know you you knew a lot lot would have been good if I'd known that a lot earlier. Anyway,
0: I, I, I would say because I'm I'm really interested in this conversation. I would say that I I was fortunate to realise it quite young. Mm-hmm. In that I you know I was fortunate to be introduced to a very uh, important Australian editor named Ivor Rindick at the age of 19 who mentored me for. A decade and really broke me like you know broke my ego through his kind of rigorous editing process um, at a very young age and in both my capacity to learn from him as an emerging editor and as an emerging writer having gone through that process at a young age really made me approach the craft in a very serious way and, and, and in a very respectful and dignified way um, but I will say that as the ed, as the Director of Sweatshop, and you know we have a we have two writers' collectives, uh, one for women of color, which is run by Winnie Dunn, and one for all writers of color, um, you know, male or female, and from you know uh, all kinds of communities, that um, in through those collectives, I have met with and worked with, you know thousands of emerging writers. And then, in addition to that, all the workshops that I've run around the country, all the sessions and seminars and um and programs and and, and, and uh, events that I've produced with writers, I have discovered that when you meet older writers who are who have been at home writing, you know their wannabe dream novels, and you know they've never studied creative writing, they never even really got confirmation that they even know how to really write a good sentence. You know, they've never had a short story published or a poem published, let alone think that they can handle creating, you know, an 80,000 word novel. Uh, And when you try to break that to them, that they don't know what they're doing and literally every sentence they wrote is a cliche, that's very, it's very hard for them to cope with that and to come to terms with that. It's also very hard for them to give up that dream and that fantasy and start again and put put in the discipline because they've got so much to lose because they put so much time into it. And so I think, you know, coming to terms with that at a young age is probably one of the most easy ways to go through the, the journey of being a writer.
1: Mm. Now, like we mentioned before, After Australia is is such an important book, I think, to showcase diverse voices, and it probably shouldn't be that way because we should probably have more diverse voices in our literature. Do you think the publishing industry is moving in this direction or quickly enough in this direction
0: um it's moving in this direction but it's absolutely not moving quickly enough Mm. that's the first point i'll make you know it's interesting that i bring up ivor Indic um earlier because i'm moving very quickly me as as an arab australian muslim who's running sweatshop who's a creative writer um and who is an editor you know that that's the editor of this book after australia i'm very quick. I'm like, things are going to change right now. And I'm uncompromising. So again, like I was explaining to you, that Sweatshop is a, a literacy movement in Western Sydney for people of colour, Indigenous people run 100% by people of colour and Indigenous people with no exceptions. And so my pace in how I envision the world changing and, and coming to terms with who we are as a nation and finding a way to reflect that, is very fast but the industry itself is very slow and the reason why I bring up Ivor Indic is because my pace was so fast I remember about six years ago when we were we were talking about this he kept on saying to me it'll change it'll change just just slow down it'll change and that there's that you know obviously like he's a lot older than me you know he's about 70 years old so for him like he's seen what 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 he's talking about you know like he's got the the position to look back over the, the, the decades and say hey you know things have actually changed and as bad as it is now it was it was even worse when when Ivor was my age for example and so he was right that things would change but where I disagreed with him um, and where I kind of hold my position is that point about slow down Muhammad things will you know the slow down part because I think they contradict each other I think things change because people like me are not going to slow down I think that the reason these things are changing is because people like me, people of color and indigenous people are, are putting tremendous pressure on the industry to change. And this ties in with uh, an important quote that Malcolm X gave at the Oxford Union during a debate in 1965, where, he's, where he quotes Shakespeare, you know, he's, he, he, he's, he quotes Hamlet, he says, to be or not to be, that is the question. Um, And he says uh, Hamlet seemed to be in doubt about something. But but for Hamlet, the question is about should he take action or not? And for people of color, the context that Malcolm X was talking about this in, he was saying that if people of color just sat around and waited for white people to come to their senses and say things have to change, we'll be waiting a very long time. And so I do think it's changing. I don't think it's changing fast enough. But where it is changing, I, I give all the credit to people of color And Indigenous people, because they are the ones who are forcing themselves into the rooms, kicking down the doors and demanding change and demanding it by any means necessary.
1: And I can't imagine how frustrating and how impatient you must feel when you do all this work and you have all this passion and then you look out into sometimes what happens in our world recently and you think, are we going forwards or are we treading water? Mm. Or in some cases, are we going backwards? Like, how does that make you feel as a person who really wants to to make change?
0: It's interesting because I, in the last maybe five years, really surrounded myself with the picture of the world that I wanted to see and live in that picture. And so 99% of the people that I am surrounded by now are people of colour and Indigenous people. 99% and if not even more it could even be a, a, almost 100%, and I'm getting close to 100%, that everybody that I collaborate with, everybody that I publish, everybody that I support, everybody that I make art with, and, and of course, I'm speaking specifically about after Australia as the latest example of this, are Indigenous people and people of colour. And so my world looks really beautiful at the moment. <laughs> and And what I mean by that is my world looks like the world that I want to see. And so when I see organizations struggling with their diversity problem or organizations who don't know how to change the structures in their organizations to look, to look more like what Australia looks like, I feel sorry for them because they act like it's an impossible mission. They go into states of denial and they act like the, the job is really hard. But I know it's actually quite easy. And I really get to be a part of that beautiful, diverse world that, um, that everybody's saying we need to get to.
1: And that just goes, again, when we're talking about the Malcolm X quote, there's a quote at the very beginning of the book that says, the future belongs to those who prepare for it today. And that's exactly what you're talking about, isn't it?
0: Well, what? yes. So thank you for pointing that out. I was confident that we would get to the Malcolm X quote. So this (laughs) ties in with um, the earlier point I was making. So I was... Um, I, you might have noticed that I made the strategic decision not to put in the editor's notes in the book. I don't speak for the book, so I don't have an introduction or anything mm-hmm. like that. I really wanted the book to speak for itself. I wanted the writers to speak for themselves. And through the collection as a whole, I think you get a sense, you should, a good reader will get a sense of who I am and what kind of an editor I am and what kind of a thinker I am. But I really wanted each contributor and the book as a whole to stand on its own feet. I don't really like anthologies where the the reader is prompted to think a certain way because the editor told them this is how to read my book so instead of my introduction i i chose to put an epigraph a quote from a scholar or a civil rights leader some kind of figure who i would argue represents what the book is trying to say and so the epigraph for me came at the end once i'd finished the book and what I, what I realized, and this, this again, it's what I, it goes back to that point I was making at the beginning of this conversation. What I realized is that whilst we were meant to be making a book set in 2050, you can't actually, in, in, in a very serious intellectual way, you, you cannot talk about Australia's future unless you're framing it and contextualizing it through our past and our present. And when I was rummaging through literally hundreds of quotes, the quote from Malcolm X that the future belongs to the people who prepare prepare for it today uh, really stood out to me as symbolic of what the book wants to say as a whole.
1: Because I did notice that, you know, there was nothing about you until the very end and there's just a small paragraph about your work. But that quote it almost says enough, doesn't it? Like it's it's one line, but it says so much and it's loaded with so much context that I, I totally got that. Maybe it's because I just read too much into things, but I got
0: it. <laughs> I think you would be an expert reader, probably one of the best readers in the country now. And so I have no doubt that um, someone like you can read the book and, and appreciate what it's trying to say, and and um, and work out the message and the meaning and the context, and appreciate each individual story um, for what it is, but then also appreciate the book as a whole. I, I think that I've been very fortunate to talk to several people since the book came out who are like yourself, who are critical readers, who appreciate that. What I'll say has been a little bit disappointing, but I, I you know I think Australia and and the, most of the world are generally is generally illiterate, and that. Um, and so it, it doesn't surprise me, but, but it's some, and obviously I run a literacy movement, so my goal is to improve literacy and critical thinking. Um, but, but one thing that doesn't surprise me, but disappoints me is how many people, you know, from the public and even a few reviewers were kind of upset that the book wasn't Star Wars. You know, <laughs> there's a, firstly, there's a real misunderstanding about what speculative fiction is and what science fiction is. Hannah Donnelly, who, of course, has four fantastic pieces that frame the entire book um, as in a series in after Australia called Black Thoughts, recently told me that science fiction is mainly about technology as a form, mm-hmm. you know, whereas speculative fiction is about culture and environment, you know, and so it's not... The idea that, like, a book of speculative fiction that might, in some way, be set in twenty fifty, has to every story has to kind of be, um, you know, like some kind of version of a George Lucas film. <laughs> I think um, is is not only a, um, a a form of illiteracy, an inability to read, but it's a kind of lack of creative reading. You know, it's a lack of imagination to like open the book and and be upset because because it doesn't it doesn't reinforce what you think a book should be you know i think good reading and creative reading is to open up a book and let it surprise you let it subvert your expectations and let it take you on the journey that it wants to take you on instead of you imposing what you expect that journey to be and i really think if you read that way if you read with a big open heart and a big open mind You'll be incredibly surprised that where you end up by the when you get to the other side of that narrative. You, I genuinely believe you can transform. You can change as a human being into another into another kind of entity.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I often think I wish there was some kind of measure as to what kind of person I was three years ago when I started the podcast to now because I've, I think for anyone who reads a lot, I really truly believe that literature changes people, usually for the better. And so I'd love to have that kind of measure of what kind of person or how you change after you read a certain amount of books like that's really interesting to me, and I think that's you know part of what you were saying that um, you know these things can actually really transform people, and that's why literature is so important.
0: can I, can I say it's a slightly controversial thing but:
1: <laughs> Oh, I wouldn't expect anything yeah, less from you yeah
0: <laughs> but, but yeah but um. I think maybe people who listen to your podcast would appreciate this. I believe, and maybe I'm biased, maybe I'm a little bit prejudiced because this is my field and my art form, but I believe that writing, you know, literature is the primary art form that transforms people. And this is my case for it. This is, my, the, this is the reason why I argue that it is exceptional in that way. That isn't to say that other art forms, of course, I think music and film and visual art transform people, of course. But what I think is incredibly unique about a form like the novel is just how intimate that relationship is, you know, that you are kind of literally most of the time in bed with a novel, literally, that you are in bed with an author and you're in their head you're reading this book that could be anywhere between 200 and a thousand pages and these are the thoughts and feelings the deepest fears and the deepest hopes um, and and framed through usually narrative of another human being and so i don't think there's any form where you go through that kind of intimacy for that longer period of time where it's just you and them in each other's hearts and souls and minds and so it's not surprising to me that the novel historically has been so terrifying to civilizations over the centuries that there's been mass book burnings of novels, you know, from is it, whether it's, you know, uh, the satanic verses or, you know, Gustav Flaubert's um, Madame Bovary. There's a there's a kind of fear that the novel and you know the lit- literature can lead to some kind of social Armageddon, that it can it can actively transform an entire society. And the way our society thinks and feels about a particular idea, that fear comes from the, the fact that we as human beings know the power of the novel and we know the power of literature to transform um, individuals and, and entire societies and entire cultures.
1: I couldn't agree with you more because that you're right they've been perceived by some people as dangerous. I mean one of my favorite novels by Oscar Wilde, The Picture of Dorian Gray was banned and he was jailed for writing that novel. So you're absolutely right, the power of that and the intimacy. You don't have to convince me. You're speaking to the mm. converted. But yeah, that intimacy of hours spent with that book. And I really like how you said you're in bed with that novel and you're really intimate. It's a really intimate experience because you know when you love a piece of writing and when you see two people who have read the same book and they love it, that, that passion and conversation that comes over them when they're talking about that book. I don't think that happens as often with other forms of art. I think you're absolutely right.
0: I think it happens in a very – you know, to me, it's I, – I mean, I, I, what I would say is the things that transformed me. I mean, what I'm telling you is that you, you, through this conversation you've already noticed – you know, the, the people listening in, and by the way, anyone who's listening, thank you for listening, <laughs> but anyone who's listened so far can probably already see that I've gone through several transformations in my, in my life. You know, I've talked to you about this transformation um, that took place when I was younger because of the influence of Ivor Indyk. Um and then the transformation that I talked to you about uh, five years ago where I really transformed who my community are and who I collaborate with and who I keep close to me and who I work with. And in all of those cases, it was writing. It was the books I'd been reading that, that prompted that transformation. You know, it was the books that Ivor was giving to me when I was 19. And it was, you know, we've talked a little bit about Malcolm X, but it was literally the autobiography of Malcolm X, which I read and studied uh, when I began my doctorate that actively transformed my entire worldview and fundamentally led me to become the person that's speaking to you right now.
1: I love that. I love that. And, you know, and that's why I do this podcast. And I've said this to people before. It's because literature and books have given so much to me over the years and all my life, as soon as I could pick up a book. And so I feel like that I just wanted to give back to the the things that have given so much to my life and have helped me become hopefully a better person and helped me when I've, you know, been in this terrible position of anxiety and couldn't get out of it it's it's always books it's always literature it's always art as well as people <laughs> but those two things combined that have always saved me and i know I'm, I'm
0: definitely not alone in that you might notice that um we have another name for the arts you know i just i'd make this point because you were you were saying that it's uh, you know books and art and and people that transform me but we have another name for the arts and it's the humanities. yes and I like to think that, that the reason why we call why we use those terms interchangeably, humanities and art, is because they are the same thing. Like when you say people, what is art except except the the expression of what it means to be a human being? Mm. And and what is the our engagement with art except for one human being or a group of human beings to communicate what that experience? to other human beings as part of that, you know, what, you know, what um, Aristotle calls our nature. You know, that, that, you know, he says that our nature is, by our nature, we are unnatural. That our, our natural position is to be a social creature that defies all the natural laws. And so to me, it's like what, that art is an expression of our humanity in the most fundamental way. I do really want our audience to understand that this is an incredibly important book because it's 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 a very courageous book that's speaking about incredibly important and complex issues at a time um, when not just COVID-19, but the Black Lives Matter movement is taking place and we are in a process of transformation. It's funny because I was kind of slagging out the expectation that, that um, after Australia is like Star Wars. But now I'm going to actually use Star Wars as, an, as a good example of what we're talking about here. Just, just you know, for, as artists, like, I, you know, I think uh, most readers appreciate writing, but, that, but they don't necessarily know how it's done. And so they might enjoy me talking a little bit about how art is made and what great art is. And, um, and I'll give you a really – this is a very mainstream example, which is why it's a good one to use. But, you know, if you look at the, the huge criticisms of the original – the, the uh, of the prequels of, of the Star Wars films, you, mm-hmm. know, the, you know, the Star yeah. Wars episode one, two and three, they're just critically and even um, publicly, you know, by the general public, they're just seen as the worst films ever made, you know. And the, the, those kind of diehard Star Wars fans always argue that the, the, the original Star Wars films are masterpieces and you know when i when i analyze those films what i think is the difference in, in the two different in the, in those films those the, the prequels versus the originals is that the originals really foreground the characters you know the, the 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 love triangle between princess leia and luke and han solo is really the most compelling and of course the, the story of darth vader and that and, and the, the tension between darth vader and 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 luke skywalker for example and those relationships Luke Skywalker's relationship with Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and, um, and Yoda, for example. Those are really the, the elements of the films that make them masterpieces. The Star Wars is happening in the background, you know. But I think in those prequels, if you watch them closely, you realize that the Star Wars is really brought to the foreground. It's really like about huge explosions and massive clone armies, and, you know. And so I think what, what I, why I think Oma's story, White Flu, is such a masterpiece is because it foregrounds the human beings and the characters and the white flu is just in the background and it's kind of a universe that these human beings exist in and 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 i think that is how we make great art as writers is we foreground the human experience um, around the, that environment that you're in there's one more point i want to make of course like how can i forget this like you were talking about you know, it just felt like a novel. So, Oma's story, for anybody, I really hope people will grab after Australia and check it out. It's such a fantastic book. I think it's a great read the whole way through. But if you're only gonna buy it because you wanna read Oma's story, <laughs> I agree with you that, you know, it's a 6,000 word story, so it's actually quite a long short story. It's, it's very enjoyable. But, but in addition to that, Affirm Press, the publisher who, who published after Australia, couldn't agree more with how fantastic this story was, as you have described. And they actually um, offered once they read uh, uh, *White Flu*, they offered Omar a contract to, oh, wow. to to turn that into a novel. And Omar is currently writing, you know, a novel. And so this this six thousand word short story, ultimately, will become, a, I, I think, a, a full length novel that in a couple of sh- in a few short years, you know, Australians and hopefully international communities will get to read on its own.
1: I'm so happy that I picked that up because I was like, this is something.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, look, I can't single out any individual story, but what, what I think is special about this book and makes it an exceptional anthology, very different to other anthologies, is the fact that, and I began to hint on this earlier, is the fact that um, Hannah Donnelly, an important Indigenous Australian and award-winning speculative fiction writer, um, is, uh, has framed the entire book for us mm-hmm. and that she has written a series called Black Thoughts, which offer a prologue, two interludes, and an epilogue. Um, and so the reason why I think that series on its own, those four pieces on their own are so fantastic, is because it actually creates a kind of, uh, an experience from cover to cover. And I think a lot of people, the way they read anthologies, is they kind of just open up to, you know, whichever random story they want to read. And that's fine. I, I think anybody that reads after Australia that way, we'll get something from the select the stories they select. But I also wanted to put the book together in a way where you could open from page one and go through a journey and read it, and read it right through. And then by the end, kind of have a kind of holistic experience of what these Indigenous writers and writers of colour want to say about our past, present and future. And I think Hannah's pieces are, are so special because they really create the arc of that, of that journey from front you know, from, from cover to back cover. The, the other point I want to make before I talk to you about my next project is that, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about the world changing at the moment and pressure on the industry to change. And, I, I, you know, we've been a little you and I are having a kind of harsh and honest and critical discussion. And so I want to just let listeners know that I don't like, you know, I often get accused. I often get accused because I talk about race in such a candid way and in such an open and explicit way. My, the mother of my son is white we live together we're raising our son together and and we have such strong complex and intersectional discussions about race and gender and we've been having those conversations for 10 years you know i my son will identify as being white as much as he identifies as being arab my um half of my family that my in-laws that you know my my son's family are white like you know i i I love white people. Like, and I don't mean that rhetorically. I mean there are literally white people in my life that I just love. Yeah. And what I'm trying to talk about are systemic and structural issues that affect all Australians. And I do actually believe that most white people are good people and mean well, and they want to see a better world. They want to see a more equal and fair and just world. They want to see rights for Indigenous people. They want to see a more inclusive society for people of colour. And so for me, it's not a question of whether you're good or bad, but what you can do to support us. And I often think a lot of people who have good intentions just don't know what the right thing to do is. And so I want to share this message that the very best thing you can do, if you are white and you are sincere about helping people of color and indigenous people, and you want to do that through the publishing industry, there's a very simple thing you can do. And it's uncontroversial. Every single indigenous writer and writer of color in the country will agree with this way of supporting us which is buy our books that's the way to help us don't read stories about us written by people outside our communities don't get secondhand information about us from the from you know the news or from the, the, the Murdoch press if you want to know us if you want to support us economically if you want to empower us if you want to understand our experiences go to the bookstores and grab our books and I really think because of these amazing writers in After Australia, these 12 indigenous and POC writers that After Australia might be a very good place to start that process.
1: And we can all do that. And it is, it's very simple, isn't it? It's very simple to do that.
0: It's simple when you listen to the right Morrison. You've got to stop listening to Scott Morrison <laughs> and start listening to Tony Morrison. <laughs> Now
1: tell me about your upcoming project because I tell you what, I remember we must have spoken nearly two and a half, three years ago and The Lebs is still a book that stays with me and I still remember some scenes very vividly. So I'm really looking forward to whatever you've got coming up next. What can you tell me about
0: it? Well, it's so funny that like I I kind of started accidentally hinting to you what my new book is about because (laughs) I I introduced – (laughs) <laughs> oh no, no! I, I, so I'm not, you know. Let's leave speculative fiction and and science fiction to, uh, Oma Seker and Hannah Donnelly. I'm I'm a you know I'm a social realist kind of writer, you know. And I um started to hint and start to introduce um you and and our listeners to my family, to the mother of my son, and I have been working on a love story. I I actually am a really romantic person, you know. I'm. I think that the fantasy and the kind of Fox News narrative about the Arab Muslim man is that he's kind of a barbaric, savage, misogynistic, you know, hairy, hook-nosed, uh, oil, like, you know, oily tycoon in the middle of the desert. I think that's the fantasy of us. But, you know, the real history of the Arab man and the Muslim man is this kind of really chivalrous, romantic, poetic um, uh, 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 mystic figure, you know, and there's uh, there's a there's a very long tradition of of the of the that that kind of story that comes out of the Arab world, which I grew up with, you know. Um, I think probably one of the most famous examples of that kind of romantic uh, oral love story is I'm not going to say Aladdin, I'm going <laughs> to say Layla Le- Layla and Majnun, the story of Layla and Majnun, and so. Um, I, I, I have always wanted to write a, a love story. And I, you know, you mentioned The Lebs is my last novel. And, you know, The Lebs was a very divisive book. It was a very confronting book. And, and we are living in right now a very divided time. And I, I really have spent the last couple of years writing a book following The Lebs that, that starts to bring us together, starts to talk about what healing uh, looks like. Um, It's a book that is, to me, uh, a book that subverts to kill a mockingbird. And so I've called it To Marry a White Girl.
1: (laughs) The way you have just described that, I cannot wait to read it. It just sounds beautiful. It almost sounds like a sequel to The Lebs, you know, when he grows up, this is what happens.
0: Yes. So I don't want to force it into that category of sequel because I always write my books standalone, Mm -hmm. that each individual book. Uh, can uh be read without reading my previous books. But um the narrator, my autobiographical version of myself is a is a boy named Banny Adam. And in my first book, The Tribe, we meet Banny Adam at ages seven, nine, and eleven. And in the labs we get to meet and get to know Banny as a teenager in the post-9-11 era. He's 16, um, 17 and 19 in the three different components of the book. And in this new and final book in this Banny Adams series that I've been writing, Banny is a young man. He's, a, he's an adult. He, you know, he's in his early 20s. He's learning about love. He's learning about um, his, what his future is going to be. He's, he's literally becoming an adult and becoming a man. And I, I really wanted to frame this book around three great loves in his life. That I, and, and um, this is not a secret, this is something that I'm proud to talk about and that I've written a novel about. But I grew up in a pretty conservative Arab-Australian Muslim Alawite family. And when I was a boy, it was always like 100% law. It's like, you can only be with a girl from our tribe, you know. And that was instilled in me at a very young age. It was a difficult journey to kind of break away from the tribe.
1: Wow, I'm really looking forward to reading this, and I hope we can speak about it when it's finished.
0: Ah uh, definitely um, <laughs> so you know it's um I'm working hard and fast with my publisher to finish it, and like we um, I've been working on it for four years and we're kind of in the last stretch now. fantastic. And so I, I it will be out next year, and I really hope that uh, people listening to this podcast firstly uh, take the time to go and check out after Australia and familiarize themselves with. Uh, this book and then familiarize themselves with the writers of the amazing indigenous writers and writers of color and all their anthologies. And, and at some point, if they did me the great honor of, of reading my own writing, um, that is, that is the, that for me as a writer, it's the thing that means the most.
1: And which is a beautiful segue now, because I want to ask you, and we've touched on it a little bit, but our, you know, I always ask this question at the end of the interviews, why do you write?
0: Um, what a beautiful question. <laughs> it's strange because I think I've answered this question many times before, but I've never been mm. asked it as explicitly as yeah. you. So here's, here's what I will say. Um, when I was a boy, when I was a child, uh, I remember looking for books in my family. I remember seeking it, you know, a very, at a very young age. I remember being four and five and being utterly fascinated by books. And, you know, I came, my family came from war-torn Lebanon. They came during the civil war. And my, my parents on both sides were, you know, my parents and their siblings on both sides were completely illiterate. They came to Australia. They all had to uh, go into the workforce. The, the men got, uh, you know, didn't finish school. They, they went into the workforce very young. The women didn't finish school. They all got married very young and then kind of became mothers. And so I, I grew up in a home where, you know, there was about 30 or 40 members living in one house. In you know relative poverty, and, uh, and and in a house that was not only economically impoverished but uh, intellectually uh, impoverished, and I remember pursuing writing and and reading at a very young age, but I think what, what 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 surprises people is they assume because I'm so educated in writing, I have I have a doctorate in writing, and because I've been quite a successful. Author, You know, I've, I've been very privileged to be shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award, for example. Um, and because of my work as an editor and running Sweatshop, I think people generally assume that I, I must have just grown up in a house filled with writing and filled with reading. Um, but, but I think the sad truth is that for me and for a lot of other writers of color and indigenous writers, that our, that our thirst for reading and writing doesn't come from the fact that we were in an environment surrounded by it. But because we were we were coming out of environments where it was missing, and we were trying to fill that void
1: mm, it's a beautiful answer, and I really liked the long pause because i I think the when people need to pause when they ask that question, they often give me the best answers
0: <laughs> um well, I'm very flattered it 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 takes a lot for you for me to pause you know <laughs> usually I'm just kind of. I'm um, like it's like I, I usually talk to people like we're playing table tennis you know so um so I think it, it uh you know it's a it's a very the conversation about why I write and 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 as an extension of that why I read um is a very uh, spiritual I think the 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 essence of that is a is a very spiritual experience for me and I'm, I'm really honored to have shared it with you tonight
1: Well, thank you. And look, I love speaking to you and I I knew that whenever I speak to you and I knew this second conversation I had with you was going to be special and we'd cover so many things and we have, and I'm so pleased that we can do that when we chat. And I just thank you so much for just being candid and for being honest and for being passionate because I think that's what we need in our human beings and what we need in our literature. So thank you so much for – I always learn so much when I speak to you as well and I always get clarity for my own thinking. So thank you for the book and the editing – and the upcoming book, which I'm really looking forward to. And once again, another fantastic, deep conversation. Can't thank you enough.
0: Thank you too. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I would like to finish again by saying salaamu alaikum to you and to our beautiful audience.